As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. BTE builds products that you can depend on, whether it's a complete power glide transmission, a torque converter for your specific combination, or any related component or bolt-on item. The professionals at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed. Shop online at bteracing.com. Everyone and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in Sportsman Drag Racing and the stars within it. All right, joining me now on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast is Andy Schmall. If you have been in attendance or watched anything from the Spring Fling Million the last two seasons specifically, you know the name. Andy has been the farthest advancing bottom ball racer in each of the last two Spring Fling Millions, and that's really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of his accomplishments. He's a two-time NHRA Division Five champion off the bottom, won numerous big dollar bracket races really across the country, both from the bottom ball side and in combined brackets where he was typically, if not always, hitting the bottom. So, Andy, welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Luke. Appreciate it. Yeah, uh, man. That's awesome to be talking to you guys today. Cool, cool. Thanks for taking some time out of your schedule for us. Let's start at the beginning. I know that racing has always been a family affair for you, uh, you and your brother, Brandon, and obviously at, at least second-generation drivers. But take me back to the beginning. Like, What's your first memory of the sport? Well, I, I grew up going to the racetrack. My dad started racing before I was born, so I've been around it my entire life. I started racing juniors when I was nine. I uh, shared with my brother when he was old enough. We're three years apart, and so I got the car to myself for a little while and then had to give it up and share it with him, which it, it was a good experience for me. Once I turned 16, we bought a Vega, and I raced that with my dad and his 69 Plymouth Fury, and we did that for about six years until I took a job in Idaho and then moved out here. So now I'm living out here with my wife, Jamie, a daughter, Riley, and we're out racing on our own. Nice. Okay. Let me pull on a couple of threads there. Let me back to the junior dragster sharing experience. Is that how I envision? Like it's yours one week, it's Brandon's the next, or how did that work? Yeah, we had a few different point series. He may have different recollection of the story than I do and who got the better deal on it. but. I primarily raced at Brainerd, so that was one of the tracks we raced at regularly. And then we had a Midwest Point Series. And so we actually became the first team in the junior dragster class to win the points. So he ran half the races, I ran half the races. As a team, we won the championship, which is pretty cool. And so 
We divide it up by by track and point series. I got you. And that Midwest series, I remember you guys, you and Brandon, kind of dominating that in the big car ranks for a couple of years as well. Is that the same series? Yep, the uh, Midwest Drag Racers Association. So it's been around for a long time, nonprofit organization. A lot of racers from the Midwest help keep that program going and offer additional benefits to it, uh, such as the perfect run challenge. You know, there's there's other things to win besides the points. But yeah, we've, we've had a lot of luck in that series pretty well. All right, so growing up, where exactly did you guys live in Minnesota again? Uh, we live just north of the Twin Cities. Okay, so, so Brainerd. Brainerd was the closest track to you, or it was one of them. We had numerous tracks within a couple hundred miles. Cedar Falls was one. Rock Falls, Brainerd. We made it to Eddyville a few times in the juniors. Yeah, there are quite a few tracks around there. And when you transitioned into the Vega at sixteen, like. I, it seems like your two Division Five championships, I don't want to say are a distant memory, but like you were a kid. How old were you when you were headed out to Pomona for the first time? I was 17 the first time, 18 the second time. So back-to-back yeah, back years. Yep, pretty young. And driving that Vega, we bought it from a good friend of ours, Bush Belair. And how he hooked us into it was he brought it to the racetrack right after I was 16 and said, here, just run this in the trophy class, you know, one of my first times racing. And we disconnected the secondaries in it so it'd go a little slower. And I ended up, I got down to maybe the quarters of the semis and that. And then he ended up talking my dad into buying it. So one thing leads to another, right? Yeah, I think I think he had a plan from the beginning. Maybe now as you look back on those, the bracket finals wins first off, and then the ensuing trips to Pomona at such a young age, Obviously, the result wasn't exactly what you wanted there. I know you didn't win the world championship either time. Coincidentally, or in a related story, your brother's also been twice. He did win it once. But as you look back on that experience, like what's the takeaway now, you know, what 10 plus years removed from it? And how do you feel like that's kind of helped you become the racer that you are today? Winning back then, I mean, it was it was a huge deal, especially how I'm, I'm in high school. I'm a junior, senior in high school and get to come back and say, hey, guys, I get to go to California and everything's paid for. So that, that was an awesome trip. Uh, there's a lot of experience there. You know, you're dealing with a lot of pressure, a track you've never been to, weather conditions you're not used to. And so if anything, I think it provided uh, a good base for my second year, which I still didn't didn't end up winning the deal, but had a lot more experience going into that. And then when my brother went, 2011, when he won the national championship, I think he had a good idea what to expect and what to go in there. And there's a lot of guys that have been there and there's a lot of experience that comes back to Pomona every year. I and mean, you have, you have the Hefflers who seem to seem to win that division ever in something sportsman pro. I mean, they, they end up there quite a bit. That experience and knowing that atmosphere and what to expect is big. Okay. You talked and kind of brushed through you said six years ago, pack up, move the family to, uh, to Idaho. Good job out there. Walk me through that time in life like how difficult was that decision not you know personally professionally racing wise you know everything that goes into it we bought a house a couple years earlier in minnesota thinking that that's where we're going to stay i was just about to graduate college working down in the twin cities and once i started getting close to graduation started applying for jobs i was at a job fair actually when i met the guys out here in idaho they Asked me if I wanted to interview, and I thought, sure, you know, it'll be good practice. I'm never going to move to Idaho, you know. And as it turned out, they they offered me a job. It was something that I thought was interesting, something I wanted to do, and ended up not getting another job in Minnesota that uh, I wanted working for Polaris. And so I talked to Jamie. She liked the mountains. She goes, let's do it. And so if it wasn't for her, we probably never would have moved out here. Uh, I probably wouldn't have come out here by myself. But one of the first things we did after getting the job offer is, well, where are we going to race? I didn't know any of the tracks out here. And so we started doing some research, find something, find out about Lost Creek. You know, it was the closest track to Idaho Falls where we were living. So I call them up and ask, hey, you know, can you run two classes at your track? And, well, what do you mean? I go, well, you can run pro and super pro, you know. And like, well, that'll be, that'll be really hard to run off the bottom bulb in both classes, you know. Like, well, I can take the box in and out of the car. So that was, it was kind of a whole new thing for, for both of us, myself and Mike Halls, who I was working, talking to at Lost Creek. 
And so I found out that, yeah, they would allow me to do that the first year. So we found a track. I came out on our little house hunting trip, found a place that would hold the race car, and the rest was history. I mean, obviously, that's something that most of our listeners can attest to. I certainly can, but it's so overlooked in like the house buying experience for us. Like That's a big part of it. You got to have room to back the trailer in, you got a place to keep race yeah. cars, you know what I mean? And, and that's not, I guess, all that common of a need in the, in the home building or home buying process for certain. Okay, so the move to Idaho, you find a racetrack. At that time, the Vegas stays in Minnesota and you brought your wife's Nova with you to Idaho, correct? Yep. Uh, that was one of the deals I made with her as far as moving out here is that my dad wanted to keep the bay. He wasn't comfortable saying that with me and had me blow it up and then him having to fix it or send it home. So made a deal with Jamie that we'd share the Nova. I was primarily driving it and we'd get her to drive it as much as we could. And yeah, then took it out here and was ready to go to Lost Creek. At what point did the car that you're currently driving that I think is most associated, at least with your recent success, when did that come into the picture? Beretta started... We bought it in 2016 up in Montana. Uh, found it from a guy who raced it up there. He tried to do a little top sportsman racing with it and then just wanted to get out. And so we found that, worked on it through 2016, built the motor for it, wiring it, plumbing it, and then we debuted it the beginning of 2017. And okay. that was, we took it, I made one run with it uh, in Idaho, Sage Raceway, which is a local track that had just been built then. Took, made one run, make sure the suspension, I wasn't going to hit the wall. And then we drove it 1,300 miles to Iowa to go race with uh, my dad and my brother. And so that was a maiden voyage in the car. That was my next question for those unfamiliar with the geography up there. How far are you from what used to be home? Yeah, we're uh, in a car we can make in about 17, 18 hours. We can drive it straight through the motorhome. It's it's a, a day to, or two trip. Right, right, right. So the Beretta... Obviously, top sportsman certified, really nice car, especially for what you were doing with it. How difficult was the transition to making that a, a no-box car? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's still, even in, in the form that you've got it, above average in terms of speed for the class, much different mm-hmm. than anything you had driven prior to that in terms of speed, and I would assume the way that it leaves the starting line. How big was that transition? Yeah, the Nova was quite a bit slower. It was the Nova was more fun to drive because doing wheelies is always fun. But the the Beretta, I say, leaves like a dump truck, especially with the motor we have in it. Uh, it's 650 horse, and so it's it's not doing anything to that chassis. Luckily, I I've got a pretty late spot on the bottom, so I just use a micro switch in there and can I'm set up to leave right on the third, and the car works really well. I'm surprised with how well that engine combination, you know, I wasn't sure with the 750 cert car putting that slow of a motor in it, if you'd have chassis problems or, or I had no idea. Uh, one of the other things that was way different for me was the nose. It's so low and it takes a stripe on all those cars that now I'm totally adjusting how I'm positioning cars at the finish line and trying to drive the finish line. And that, that there was a little learning curve to that. Yeah, no question. What is that combination? What motor do you have in the Beretta? It's a 437 big block Chevy, which is a 60 over short stroke 427. Okay. That's and really odd combo. I got really big heads on it. I got 345cc heads on it and a large intake. So my carburetor seems kind of jacked up. I don't run any, I don't run any jets in it. Uh, I've got a pretty small air bleed in it. But the one nice thing is when I go to elevation, where I go to sea level, I don't have to change anything with it because it's already, it's pulling as much fuel as it, it can. Gotcha, gotcha. At sea level, what type of ETs? We've raced at Woodburn with it, and I've gone 930 in the quarter mile. That's the fastest. Gotcha. And everything that you do is is, is bottom ball, but with a button, correct? Use yep, yep. I've, I haven't foot brake. Never really did much of that in Minnesota. Everything, everything was a button. And then coming out here, it's the same. You know, it's, it's no box. I'd like to get into the foot brake. I think it'd be fun. It's something different. But just... Haven't really had the opportunity and haven't really wanted to reach that far out of my comfort zone foot braking with all the button racers. Sure. No, I mean, where you're at, there's no reason to, right? There's no foot brake only stuff for the most part. Right. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, accomplishments wise, what in the last now two and a half seasons, just since you've had that car, 
Uh, I know that we talked about an incredible weekend that you had in Salt Lake City. I think it was last season, kind of nearly run the table. Uh, I know that you've done well up at Boise at the Night Fires or one of those events, had some success there. I know firsthand that you won a 30 grander in Byron, Illinois, because you smacked me around in the final. And then I think as we led the show with like what most people really associate your success with recently is at the spring fling million. And I want to transition to that, make that like a little bit separate conversation in general, but over the course of the last two years, like that a is a ton of success at a variety of facilities, like just the pure geography of that. Like most people don't travel that far in two years period, much less have success at all of them. Let's go there first. Just the, the challenge of racing from the area that you race from, not just in terms of logistics. You mentioned it may have been off air that your closest racetrack's 220 miles away, and that's the tip of the iceberg in terms of where you guys travel. But the changes in elevation and facility, and you've kind of got to be ready for everything, no? Yeah, it was fun talking to some of the guys in Vegas, uh, Kevin Pollard, you know, they, they're coming from back east and they're saying, man, it's like I got a rig on my carburetor. And we go, well, you should come race where we're at because we see, you know, 7,500 feet DA uh, is not uncommon. We're losing half, three, four tenths in the eighth, just an altitude going to our tracks. So there's a lot we have to keep in mind when going from, you know, Anaconda, which is at 5,000 feet, to Vegas, to the Woodburn to Fontana, you know, for Chris Forsyth's race coming up. So it's, yeah, interesting to say the least to be able to adapt to not only how is the car running, but now you're adapting to different speeds and trying to drive the finish line now with the, you know, a 590 car going to be compared to 640 and everything comes out a little different, but I think it overall makes you a more well-rounded racer. Uh, as far as the distance, you know, like you said, we have 220 miles to our our home track at at lost creek so it's good for us to buy a lot of stock in exxon mobile because we burn a lot of fuel going going up there and you know going to vegas a couple times a year and even our east coast trips to byron and uh, cedar falls and brainerd to race the family and so yeah that's lots of travel and just you said 20 ish hours in the motorhome to get back home how far to vegas or like fontana that's that's got to be a hike right yeah vegas is 600 miles okay so Actually being able to race there at the spring fling, it's, you know, hey, a, a large race that's half the distance from traveling the East Coast, which was great. Chris Forsyth, and uh, he's got a couple races in Tucson and Fontana, uh, bigger races for the for the West Coast, which we don't have. We don't have too many big dollar races. Fontana's about 800 miles for us. Tucson's a little farther than that. Uh, I actually haven't made it down to Tucson yet. Their race in March, usually we still have snow up here, and I'm kind of a procrastinator and with work, I don't, I'm not usually ready to go by then but yeah there's a lot of travel there uh, specific you'd mentioned and i'd never even really thought about you know, obviously your, your race car acts different at altitude but i never even thought about like how different is that throttle response when you go to pumping at the finish line at 7500 feet versus you know like you said woodburn which is probably the best air any of us would run in yeah when we get to woodburn it the car leaves and you're like whoa something's, <laughs> something's going on here and we go up to Montana and race, and you think something's broke to the point you're, eh, should I check valves again? Or it's probably okay, you know. But it just, you know, coming up on people, throttle response isn't too much because I don't make that much power. And so kind of wherever I lift, it, it's similar at most of the racetracks. But the speed difference and, and chasing people versus even being chased, uh, that's the biggest challenge for me. How big of an ET discrepancy would you see throughout the year? I know you said you've been 930s at Woodburn. Like, what would that be at one of your slower tracks? Quarter miles to Salt Lake uh, in the Beretta, we were going 10 O's. So that's, <laughs> that's probably the slowest that we've, that we've been. Just seven tenths. I like yep. it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Same combination. Okay, so over the, the, the course of those last two seasons that I, I feel like even you have to admit have been incredible, you know, I mean, a ton of success at the bottom. What, and again, let's set the sprinkling million aside because we'll transition into that. Is there any single win or event or maybe just even a single round that really stands out to you over the last two years and go, man, that was really, really cool. If I look at, I mean, the, the, yeah, the million set aside from that, the experience in Byron, I'd never won anything over, you know, my big check saying five grand. 
and then to go to Byron a track I grew up racing at. I've had some success there. I'm comfortable at that track. Even the events leading up to it. I decided to go to the race uh, maybe a week before. Uh, we picked up a little trailer. I had my truck. Jamie was very pregnant at that point, and so she was not going to be making the trip, especially with it being so hot. So I was on my own. Uh, I ended up getting sick the Sunday before. So I'm loading everything up, getting ready to go, you know, coughing, sneezing, whatever, bring a lot of, uh, bring a lot of cold medicine for the drive. Uh, I'd originally planned on sleeping in the truck, you know, just me. I didn't care. I'd sleep in the driver's seat on the way there, uh, get some rest, and then ended up instead getting a hotel because I couldn't handle it. I was just miserable on the drive there. And then, yeah, the first day to go out and end up winning the race was was awesome being able to race you in the final i mean that's something growing up reading all your blog posts and on the road you know i followed you around all over the place so that was that was exciting in itself and then just to be able to sit now and look back on it and go holy crap i drove 1300 miles for one weekend and magically turned it into a win it's like it's incredible yeah and uh to your point, like the family and the friends, the, the cheering section there was immense. You know what I mean? That had to oh, be yeah. pretty special in and of itself, right? Yeah, and I could barely celebrate it. I was sick. You know, someone comes up with a beer and I was like, you have some mucinex or something? <laughs> you know, I think I, I had one beer and then went to bed and got ready for the next day. And I was like, oh man, I was, I was rough. What's that like mindset-wise? And again, we'll, we'll transition more into Springfield Million, but obviously that's a, a big one in, in this discussion. From your standpoint of going through winning the, the no-box side at a race of that magnitude and then getting combined with the other cars, so like, there's obviously a, a feeling of accomplishment when you get through the no-box cars, but there's especially financially speaking, there is obviously work yet to do. You know, I mean, there's a huge pot of gold at the end if you can get through the whatever it would be, two, three, maybe four rounds of all-run competition against the boxcars. I would assume at that point, like, you kind of roll in and you just keep doing what you're doing, but does the mindset shift at all when you get combined with the boxcars? It's a little different. I mean, I, I try and keep it keep it the same the no box guys are just as nasty as as the guys off the top and you can run into a hammer whether you're racing on the bottom bulb side or the top bulb side i try and keep my my same program going i keep trying to hit the tree i may get a little bit more aggressive it really depends on how the day's gone as as far as byron goes i mean i think the first the first hit i was pretty red and just let it ride usually i get a little nervous and i end up slowing down and so I was like, well, I'll be set up good. And, you know, I was decent, you know, throughout that day. And that's a, that's a pretty nasty no-box field too uh, at Byron. They usually fill that up. And especially with that race where after getting through the no-box side the first day, I was in the final of the door car side. So I had, I had to race two guys with the box to be able to win the race. And, yeah, coming through that, you know, even Vegas or any of the races as you – as you get through the no box side, like you said, it's, it's just the beginning. And sometimes you're not even in the split at that point. Right. So you really, you really got to focus and make sure you keep up your game, you know, and hope that the guy you're racing makes a little bigger mistake than you in the end. Yeah. To your point about Byron too, because that no box contingent is so strong in that area, not only super talented, obviously, but just huge. That's the only race I've ever been to. If the no box door cars didn't outnumber the box door cars, like it was really close. Yeah. And that's rare for me. I know that's common for the area because no box is so big, but that's the first time I'd ever seen anything quite like that. It was so cool to see that many bottom bulbers in that big of an event. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, back there, even the regular bracket races will have, you know, 15 cars or so that run super pro off the bottom. Mm-hmm. And that's their that's their regular program, and they do well at that. So it's not surprising that Byron draws, you know, some of the bigger no box names from the Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa area. Uh, whereas I haven't seen that as much out on the West Coast, and haven't raced much on the East Coast to know whether or not that happens there. But there's yeah. there's a lot of guys that you know they're not afraid to go run run with the box guys. And I, th- I think you can attribute a lot of that specific to Byron. And there's a couple other area tracks up there that the regular program is 
I guess, unique to that area in terms of like Byron specifically. I don't think they open the gates for less than twenty five hundred or five grand to win. Like their regular points meet is a is what we would typically call a, a big dollar race. And the way that that's structured, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's one combined category, but no box runs separate and box runs separate all the way to the final in every race. So there's it's one purse, but you're guaranteed a no box car in the final, right? Yep. And yeah, the no box one of the no box guys, if you're one of it, you're running the super you're running the box guy. And so yeah, yeah. And it seems like that. it seems like the Novox guys, if they're not batting over 500, it's close. Like in those finals, yeah. traditionally over the years. So just a, a cool, in a different format. I, I think I like it, and I think that in large part explains why the Novox contingent is so strong in that area. You know, uh, like the Sprinkling Million, you have you have a Novox guy that can go out there and race for five grand where you typically don't have the you don't have the support to be able to do that but when you can combine the classes the overall car count can can generate a much bigger purse for both sides no question no question all right so let's transition then into the spring fling million we've been teasing it for a while and and you like like a pro just smoothly made the transition there so that's awesome i appreciate that specific to the last two seasons i think you've been at every one of them right Everyone that's had the million. Right. Uh, four when, now. We, when we first moved to Idaho, I had uh, I had to wire the Nova and finish that. And so we watched we watched the sprinkling from the hotel we were living in at the time. So that was that was our racing fix. <laughs> Specific to the last two years with the Beretta, I actually think although I don't I don't know financially it wasn't the windfall, but eighteen was like a more dominating performance over the course of the weekend. I I know you were the furthest advancing Nobox car in the million. But I think you won the the Pro 32 or 38 the first two days as well. Is that? Uh, we had our buddy Steve Stockton come out, and he was driving the Nova that year instead of my brother who's driving it this year. And yeah, we laughed about it because coming into it, you know, we were talking about it. You know, hey, what's you know, I wonder what it's like to be down there in the million, and you know, does it feel any different? Is it how how do the nerves affect you? You know, and as it turned out, uh, I won the first day in the pro side he won the second day in the pro side and then i ended up winning the pro side uh, in the million that day so after that we were like holy crap this is you know you've got some of the nastiest no box racers in the country and we went through them three days in a row like how does that happen so it was, it was crazy being able to talk about that and even to get down you know get down into the split in the million you're there and I, I usually find myself pretty good with numbers when we get down to, you know, bigger races, like understand, okay, you know, here's, here's where the split, here's how much money we have. Here's, here's what we should do. And I rolled up there that round and like, even at the trailer, I'm trying to think of it. And it's like, that's too much money. I have no idea what to do here. You know, it's like someone's been there before and someone's going to say something. And I'm going to go, yep, that sounds good. That was over my head at that point. <laughs> And that season in the million, you fall in the quarterfinal round. Yep. Okay. Okay. Now let me let me go back here because you said between you and Steve, you win three days in a row. Like, how does that happen? So I'll turn that around. How does that happen? <laughs> it was a lot of pulling on the lanes, right? And when we had, you know, I I like that race because we're, we're rolling up to the front. You know, you've got Anthony Bertozzi who's up there. You got Justin Lamb who's up there. I think I raced Anthony tw- two or three times. I raced Justin twice. And it's staying on your game for that long is it's incredibly difficult. And then you're you're going up against stock, super stock, champion of pretty much everything in the last five years. And you're like, wow, that dude can't lose. So you, you really, it, it brings your game to a whole new level, which is one of my favorite parts about it. Yeah, just the challenge of it's got to be immense. Like I just sit back and listen to the the Pro 38 side and just blown away year after year after year. In fact, Justin told me this year that next year he's thinking about not even entering the Pro 38 and just running off the bottom with the door cars because he's like, it can't be any harder. You know what I mean? Yeah, Um, he even did that this year. Yeah, right. Yeah, and had some success the one day. So walk me through this season's Spring Fling Million. He didn't have the success of the year prior thursday and friday leading up to it i don't think uh and, or it should be wednesday and thursday leading up to it because millions on friday take me through the million dollar day obviously we know the end result you win the the pro 38 side advance to the semifinals of the spring fling million but kind of take me through it mindset wise from as early as you want to start time trials first round whatever and kind of how the day proceeded 
Yeah. Well, even starting Tuesday, I was in the Drakester race and was fighting issues with the car. You helped me help me find a fuel pump to change out. And I rolled up there first round for the Drakester race and I was using the box and flinch it to be 132 first round. And I'm like, great, that, you know, just $350 out the window. And then, you know, after that, into the no box side, I raced my buddy, Brett Burton. I'm 10 take nine for the loss. He straps one on me. And the worst part about it is we're good buddies. And so we get hooked and it's like, hey, loser has to shotgun a beer. And so not only did I lose the round being 10 take nine, but I had to go to his trailer and shotgun a beer. And so he, uh, he ended up winning that day, which was, you know, awesome. It's good to see him go rounds, took down a couple of door car guys. And he, I mean, he was on it, but then coming into the million, the car was working well. I was decent on the tree as team 20, you know, not stellar really getting around first round is a huge thing, you know, cause you don't start making money until you win third round and you make 500 bucks just by winning first, not having to buy back. So got through first round, things just kind of started falling into place. I had, I had the right guys. I was there when I needed to be. And when I was a little, a little off, they were a little off with me. Yeah. Then ended up racing, getting through the no box side, racing uh, Lane Dickin, fellow, fellow Midwest racer. In that in that dragster, which is crazy, you know, he's he's going four forties. I'm at six twenties there, and it's like, okay, you know, I've been chasing most of the day, and now it's well, I had to sharpen my pencil and say, okay, what what's the car actually going to run now, and make sure I could just try and hit the number, you know, and then getting through that racing peeps at four, you know, you're that much closer to the final round. You've got all the buildup, you've got the money talks before the round, and you're like you're rolling up under the arch at Vegas and it's like, man, it's, it's me and him and those two guys in front of me and we're it. You know, I had the Hoosier tire guys draw me in the Calcutta, which was hilarious. I was talking to uh Farron from Hoosier tire uh, in the morning, you know, just randomly talking. They were up, they were up making the, the time run for the pro, uh, the run for the money. And I didn't make it. I wasn't set up to be there. I'm, I'm not going double all unless I'm, or I'm not perfect unless I'm messing up. And so I, I just didn't take the time around. I was talking to him up there about tires, you know, on our Nova and everything else. And they're like, Hey, we picked you in the Calcutta, you know? So we went over and talked to them for a little while and tried to get a deal with them. I was like, Hey, if I, if I win this and if, I, if you guys win the Calcutta, I, I get tires, right? You know, you guys got to hook me up. And they're like, Oh yeah, we'll buy, we'll buy anything, whatever you want. You'll be hooked up with that. So not only do you have the pressure of the million I've got, I was like, Oh man, I called this with the Hoosier guys this morning. If I, if I can get through this, I'm getting hooked up with tires. This would be great. And so that was awesome coming to that and then getting dropped at four, missed the tree a little bit. That's always disappointing, but it's bittersweet because, you know, only one guy's walking away with it and there's, you know, 12 to 16 people who are getting a good chunk of change and are, you know, had a great day. It's, it's more money than I've won at, any other track I'm going to be at this year, you know, it's bigger than that purse, but there's still an aspect to it. Of, man, I could have done better. You know, it's like, sure. Yeah, no, I, I, bittersweet's a good word because a part of you has to say, you know, you're two rounds away from winning the million. Like there, most of us could sit back and say, I may never have that opportunity again. On the other hand, like we don't have to get into the details of the split, but like say you're making way more money than most of us have ever made racing in one day's work for losing a semifinal. So it's hard to be too upset, but yeah, like I can see the, the conflicting feelings there. How I'm curious, having been in similar positions now, back-to-back season, you talked about how, I don't know if overwhelmed is the right word, but how new you were to that feeling in 2018, you know, being down there, talking the split, huge, huge numbers. How much did going through it once help you like how much more comfortable was that experience this time around it helped quite a bit i mean the first time i think i was i don't know if this was the first million or the second one i, I lost at three in the pro side and ended up out of the split and i was like oh man i just lost you know seven grand that round one round i lost seven grand you know and then end up in 18 you know i, I make it to the final and it's like yeah i'm in the split you know it, one further and it's it's almost like 
I, I was happy with where I got, you know, and kind of let my guard down a little bit. And so even this year, it's like you get, you get through pro and you're like, all right, let's, let's keep going, you know, stay, stay on it. It's great with what you, you've had. And, you know, especially when you rolled up there at 16 and there wasn't a split, you know, which wasn't, wasn't too surprising knowing, knowing the history, you know, going up there, it's like, yeah, there's probably a chance this doesn't get split right here, but so that's the no box final then like how much added pressure then is there on that round oh yeah there's there's a lot and going into that it's you you just you really got to step up and luckily you know i was you know 20 again thinking thinking i'm hitting it good and he was a little late and i was able to get around but those wind lights hold on hold on as a very mediocre bottom ball racer like wait 20 is not good (laughs) uh 20 in the pro 38 is is borderline. Ah, I should be. I should be doing something a little better here. You know, understand. Uh, understand. <laughs> uh, nasty Nick being was he three take nine or nine take three for the loss to Ezel one of the days. It's like if you're not team and going dead on, you may be in the way. And so throughout the day, I was I was a little disappointed. I I was fourteen to twenty eight throughout the day and trying to strap it on thinking I was good. You know, even when I left against peeps, I was like, Oh yeah, I got this. I I'm on it. You know, and it was one of my worst lights of the day. So it goes to show you that, you know, emotions can do a lot to you, a lot to your head and change what you're thinking. Yeah. No, to that point, when the year that I won the spring fling million, when I let go in the final, the first thought in my mind was you just went right in the final of the million and it was my worst light of the day. So yeah, <laughs> I understand exactly what you're saying. Specific to that event, and let me give a little bit of context here because admittedly, I I didn't follow it along that closely because it didn't pertain to me directly at the time. But when they announced the originally the Pro 32 field, my initial thought was that will never fill up. Like, why on earth would you come with a bottom bulb car and enter and race against top bulb cars? Like, I didn't think it through, and it speaks to the brilliance and the the kind of statistical mathematical mind of Kyle Seipel to think that through and pitch it the way that he pitched it to make it work. Because in the end, it's brilliant specific to the million because this year was a bit of an anomaly and that it was just you, just the winner of the no box side that, that made the split because the split was around later than typical. But I think in every year prior, maybe not the year Verdi won. I think it was just Justin got this, but, but regardless, like typically it's, both no box finalists are in the quote unquote split and are getting six figures typically, you know, guaranteed. And there's not many opportunities to run an no box car with that, the ability to make 10,000 plus dollars for advancing to what, like round six, you know I mean? You can put it in a context where it's a really enticing deal, right? Yeah. And even before the million, when Pete and Kyle had the separate spring fling where they ran pro separate, they had tons of cars and and on both sides of it and there's there's quite a few no box racers out here that that chase the big money and they they've shown that they can fill that fill that race up even at the $2600 entry uh, but there's there's nowhere else out here like you said that you can win six rounds off the bottom granted against it's it's some of the nastiest guys in the country at this point uh, with everyone driving from the east coast i mean you got you got racers from everywhere. It's the who's who of no box racing. If you can survive the shark filled waters for six rounds, you end up, you know, nothing's guaranteed, but odds are you end up with a good payday. That's awesome. I had I, I wish they'd expand it, you know, if they could get if you could get sixty four cars, say, in the in the pro, that's another round and you're putting that that no box guy even further in and the way the Pro thirty eight filled up this year, it was done in I think a few days where they they filled the 38 and it, it goes to show you what they're doing and the spring fling brand it's incredible the amount of work they put in they they care about the racers and they put on a great event yeah no question i i think it is they've set the bar with i don't think many people would argue with that at all let me close out this interview Andy, by asking just a couple of, of more general questions um geared toward the novice listener, maybe the, well, let's start off with maybe the guy that's just getting into the sport. 
and I don't mean to, to belittle bottom ball racing at all, but if you're going to start somewhere, it would be in a foot brake style class, whether it's your trophy street class, street sportsman, whatever, as arguably like the most successful competitor off the bottom over the course of the last several years nationwide, like what advice would you give the racer just starting off and competing in, in, in bottom bulb classes? One of the things I suppose I would say is, you know, you said they're just starting out. You're not going to generally go out and get yourself a 450 Drakes or in, and go, go run with the super pro guys right, right away. But it's ask questions. Most of the guys, even, you know, the bracket racing community, it's a family out there and everyone's willing to help. And just starting into it, go up to the guy who's maybe your track champion and say, hey, you got any tips for me? You got any advice? You know, what, what can I do to get better? And the more you hang out with those guys and the more you seek to understand how, how the, the track champions at, you know, any racetrack, how they operate ends up making you a better racer. No question. As you look back, who are some of the people that filled that role for you? Well, like I said earlier, you know, I followed your stuff, followed you around all over, you know, the goods and the bads with you traveling around the country and, you know, the, the good stories that come around with that. Growing up in Minnesota, we had, you know, several good racers that you follow and talk to. And usually it's the guy at the track being called the cheater at the time, who's the guy you want to go talk to and say, hey, what how are you doing this? You know? Yeah, no question. Okay. Let's take the level of advice a little bit further for the experienced and and successful bottom ball racer venturing into some of the bigger combined races, whether it's the spring fling million or like the event that we talked about at Byron, where if you do succeed through the no box class, the no box portion, you'll have, you know, two to four rounds against the boxcars to get the ultimate prize. What advice would you have for that racer in terms of getting prepared for that style of an event? Yeah, talking about Byron earlier, you know, and the level of competition that their no box class brings and how that brings out a lot of good racers and how they're used to racing the boxcars. I would say that on the bottom ball, generally mistakes up front are more evident. If you miss a tree on the bottom, you're maybe going 50 or 60, whereas if you miss a tree on the top, maybe you're 30. But a guy who was on his game on the bottom ball was just as capable uh, as the guy on the top ball, if not more, because I know when I run super pro off the bottom, if I'm you know not feeling the box, whatever, I'm, I'm better on the bottom that day. I'll make sure everyone knows that I've got an end on the window. It's as big as I can make it. It's circled. It's it's if that guy, if that guy with the box can throw, you know, a hundredth in, that's another hundredth at the finish line he's given me. And so if I can be on my game and let him or her, you know, relax a little bit on the starting line, that can give me an advantage to win. And it's just as difficult running through a no box field at a big race as it is the box field. Even, even talking, you know, with Justin and saying, well, man, I don't want to run the pro 38. I'd rather, I'd rather run through the super pro side uh, off the bottom. You know, that, yeah, it goes to show you that both classes are just as tough. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Okay, so you were a little bit nervous about this coming in. You got through it, no issues. We tend to close. I don't know if, you, if you've listened to the Sports and Drag Racing podcast in the past, but we, we close this by having a little bit of fun. So I've got some rapid-fire questions for you. They're short answer, short question, not always racing-related. So you, you, up for, you up for having a little fun? Yeah, I'm ready. And I'm okay. not going to get as much time as you gave Edmund, right? That was a one-time thing for him. Hey, hey if you want to expand on something, I'm <laughs> far be it for me to shut you up. This, I actually saw this in my, in my list of questions. I thought it was a good one. Given your engineering background, this is not a typical rapid-fire question, so feel free to go with it. But what new technology will transform our future? Coming from you know my engineering background, I run I run a lot of the stuff in my car – uh, even, you know, at the fling, they pull you over to check ignition boxes and stuff. And they open my door and see a 7AL3 in there and go, oh, you're good. You know, slam the door and I take off. I haven't been one to really adapt the new technology of the, the grids and the playback, playback packs and the race pack stuff. I have a race pack in the car. I rarely use it and actually haven't, haven't quite gotten it to work right yet. And so and as far as new technology, I mean, we've come so far in 
you know, shock design and chassis components that make cars so much better, uh, more reliable engine components. You've seen the boosted cars come into play with the pro chargers and the blower motors around top sportsmen. So I think a lot of the technology is going to come into making the fast cars more reliable because we're getting down to the point now where top dragster is, is the cutoff for your, your chassis design. And so those guys aren't, they're not looking to go faster now. They're looking to make their stuff last longer. Uh, and I think you're going to see uh, more companies start. I mean, you already are, but further innovation in engine part design. Yeah, more focused on longevity. Makes sense. All right. How about a, uh, a go-to or a favorite first thing that comes to mind movie quote? I don't get out much, so <laughs> I don't watch a lot of movies. I go to work, I come home, and I go to the racetrack. I'm with you. I understand um, completely. <laughs> so movie quotes. I used to grow up saying, so this wasn't, this isn't a movie quote, so I'm just going to kind of change the subject here. Sure. Uh, I think it was Vince Lombardi that said, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. And so that's what I grew up with. My buddies, you know, driving juniors, it was like, yeah, we're going to win, you know. It was like, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. That's that's the only thing that can come to mind right now. So has that like perspective changed at all as you gotten older? A little bit. So I'm still there to, to watch a scoreboard light up, you know, every, everyone who shows up thinks they can win. I've started to embrace more of the friendships and maybe the party uh, at the racetrack and enjoying the time out with, you know, friends and family and you know, my wife. And now we've got a daughter who's growing up in, in the sport of racing, just like I did. Uh, so it's, you know, along with trying to turn on the wind lights and that being, you know, number one priority when you're on the starting line, it's hey, make some good friends, share some, share some knowledge. So the, the group can get better, enjoy the time of the track. And occasionally shotgun a beer when you get smacked around, right? Yeah. You know, make fun bets. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, my, like my go-to question here is favorite racing facility. So I'm going to flip it on you. Least favorite racing facility, or if you don't want to out anybody, maybe it could be framed as the most unique racetrack that you've been to in your travels. Well, so there's a few categories of racetracks and most unique. So I would say Fontana. It's an awesome track, but I have had horrible luck there. Either I'm not, I can't hit the tree. I can't run around. Uh, I have not done well there. So that's probably my least favorite track. As far as unique, uh, Lost Creek is probably the most unique track that, that I've been to. Those guys usually on the West Coast. So, you know, go to Vegas. Uh, there's not too big of a party scene like there is at the East Coast Million or some of the East Coast races. But those boys from Montana, they can get down. Uh, I've seen videos of those guys jumping scooters over bonfires. They do some crazy stuff. And so most unique track, they definitely get that. And they know how to have fun up there. That's for sure. <laughs> there's value in that. No question. All right. How about uh, favorite TV channel? Favorite TV channel. So we recently got rid of our, our cable TV. Mm -hmm. So we've been watching Netflix primarily. Uh, and Netflix tells me that our favorite movie and TV uh, category would be uh, action, thrillers, suspense, shooters. Uh, so we watched The Walking Dead. Uh, we watched some... Uh, we've gone through the Breaking Bad series. Um, a lot of shoot 'em up movies. Uh, what's another one we're watching right now? Mixed in with some Disney Junior, I'm sure. Yeah, right now it's uh, Little <laughs> Baby Bums on Netflix. It's like crack. Uh, she'll watch that all day. <laughs> uh, when Andy Schmall dances, he looks like a. Uh, oh man. So not only. Alcohol is usually involved in this. Uh, it's, how, how could it not be? <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the only way. As an engineer, it's the only way I can actually be an extrovert is a little bit of alcohol. So uh, not only do I dance, but I end up singing karaoke generally. Nice. Uh, What's the yeah. go-to there? Uh, there, it's typically Matchbox 20. Okay. Uh, they're, my, they're one of my favorite bands. So 
that, or I make up lyrics to old country songs. Uh, Jamie likes the old country songs, so they go bing, 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 and I'll, I'll make up random, <laughs> random words, and she gets mad. So, but as far as dancing goes, uh, I look like a nerd trying to dance. I could say <laughs> it's, it's like, hey man, that's a good try, but you shouldn't do that. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Andy, thank you for your time. Thank you for having some fun with us here. And uh, again, congratulations on your immense success, really over the course of your career, but specifically in the last couple of years. Best of luck to you going forward in uh, 2019 and beyond, man. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Appreciate you guys having me on. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available, subscribe. And you can do that on Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. BTE is one of a few full-service transmission companies with a full array of manufacturing and testing capabilities. Their in-house CNC facility is paired with an extensive collection of gear hobbing and shaping machines to produce any high-performance driveline product. From, From inception, BTE's racing products are designed, prototyped, field tested, produced, inspected, and even shipped by real racers. Just outside of Memphis, Tennessee, their warehouse and manufacturing facility in Mount Pleasant, Mississippi, is stocked with thousands of parts and centrally located in the United States for fast delivery anywhere. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, This is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.